1: At orderct.com slash Easter twenty-four.
0: So if we think about just repentance as return and Lent as a season of repentance, it's it's a season that we can sort of mark out of our calendar where we can return to consecrating ourselves to God. I think repentance and return are daily acts. You know, I don't think we only do it during the season of Lent, but there is something really beautiful to sort of like mark out a season of time to sort of give, to dedicate it to God and to just say, you know, I'm going to give more attention to this. And there is something really beautiful to just sort of set our intentions toward God, toward returning to God, toward acknowledging our sin, and a willingness to sort of hear His words.
1: Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast, brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a podcast designed for church leaders desiring to make disciples for Jesus Christ in the world. I'm your host, Oliver Hersey, and today I am joined by our producer, Kelsey Bowes. How are you, Kelsey? How are you doing?
2: Doing really well, Oliver. Yeah, it's really pretty here in Michigan right now with the fall leaves changing my birthday's coming up and no way make a big deal about that unlike other people so i'm really excited for jen to be with us today as well so yeah just excitement all around
1: forever 27 right
2: that's right yeah and i keep getting carded so let's hope that happens until (laughs) the day i die
1: yeah yeah that's great happy happy so it's coming up happy birthday and uh and we yeah it's been uh it's been a beautiful fall so far. We've had some really nice weather, and, and Kelsey, we're so I'm so glad. I always love it when you jump on. We love all the hard work you do on this podcast. And um, for those of you tuning in today, Kelsey is Kelsey is the brains behind a lot of our questions and organization, and she is the mastermind behind bringing in great uh, guests that continue to shape and grow and challenge us to think about discipleship practically, theoretically to think about ways that we can continue to grow our faith. So, Kelsey, thank you for all you're doing. And and you've had uh, the privilege and opportunity today to bring on our next guest, somebody that uh, I'm now very excited about after reading her book and getting to know her a little bit. She is the author and speaker and teacher. Some of you might know her work. She has written Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either or World which actually won an Award of Merit for the Beautiful Orthodoxy Book of the Year in 2020. She has written several other books. Her fourth book is coming out very soon, and perhaps when you're listening to this, it's already out. It's called A Habit Called Faith, and it's a 40-day journey that takes you devotionally through Scripture and her life. We are so excited to welcome Jen Pollock-Michelle. Welcome on board. We're glad to have you.
0: Oh, thanks so much. This is going to be fun.
1: Yeah. Have you done podcasts before?
0: Yeah, not for this book. This is my first one for I Have It Called Faith, but I've yeah done lots of different podcasts. I'm actually hosting a podcast now, the Englewood Review of Books, so that's sort of okay. fun.
1: And how is that podcast going?
0: So fun. Yeah, it's essentially just getting great. You know, people together to talk about books. So, for readers that are listeners today, you know, it's it's wonderful to tune into because at the end of the day, you you have a great conversation around books, which is obviously a conversation around life and faith and and just being human. And then the show notes are so valuable. We usually end up with like. I don't know, sometimes like 40 titles, you know, that have been mentioned over the course of an episode. So it's just a great way, great resource to find some great books.
1: Well, we are really excited to have you on today. And so we wanted to really talk to you about um, a wonderful book that you have written. And I know you've offered several recently and uh, you're just cranking them out. It's great. I love it. Just- <laughs> How do you just, where, where do you find the time to write? Because you're a mom of five.
0: Mama five, yeah. I mean, I really just sort of treat the hours that my kids are in school just like a regular work day and force myself to come into my basement office and, and just work. So it's nothing really more exciting than that or magical than that. Of course, challenges now with COVID and having kids at home and, you know, just a bit of just some disorientation in terms of just regular routines. But normally, yeah, it's nothing more special than just sitting down on my desk and working in the middle of the day.
1: It involves discipline, doesn't it? It involves real intentional discipline on your part to to get those things done. And now we've had an opportunity to have an early look at a pre-publication book that's coming out. So we just want to thank you for allowing us to do that. And thank you to Baker Publishing for letting us do that. And I guess one of the things I'd love to just start our conversation off with today is how did you discover this? How did you discover that God was calling you to write in such a way that is benefiting and growing people and challenging them to get into space where they might meet God.
0: Mm. I love that question because I think so often we sort of imagine that people come to these ideas like really magically or mystically, you know, that God sort of leads us in these ways that are infallibly like we know, certain, you know, that we always know that it's the right path. And I wouldn't say that that was true for this book. Really, I had, I had an idea for several different books and just in conversation with several people, ended up landing on this one. And this one, I think, resonates particularly with some of the work that I've been doing over the last many years really just on habits. You know, I think even back with Teach Us to Want, there's this whole idea of the desires of our heart can be rightly ordered as we pursue the right habits, you know, and and i You know, I think about James K. A. Smith's work in Desiring the Kingdom. And one of the things that he talked about in his book was that habit is like a hinge of the heart, you know, that we can shape our desires by the habits that we practice. And so that sort of stuck with me, I think, over the last many years. And I mean, even surprised by Paradox, you see habits and spiritual practices in that book. I, I love Tozer, who says, you know, I think he was asked, you know, what makes a saint a saint? And he said, you know, it's the habit. spiritual response. I mean, that sort of is what saints do. They just, they practice the habit of just responding to God, hearing his voice and responding to him. And there's something so beautiful and simple about that. I think, you know, again, it sort of demystifies this whole notion that faith is maybe hard or complicated or ethereal, you know, and that there's just some magical way that, you know, some people get it and some people don't, you know, and, and habit is, I feel like an invitation that everybody could take up. And so I would say this book is sort of based a lot on my interest in habits. And I also think it's, it's really just the product of reading scripture for many, many, many years. You know, when I was 16 and I became a Christian, It was recommended to me to make it a habit to read my Bible every day, which, you know, seems fairly obvious. But it was actually very practically sort of put to me like, just spend 10 minutes a day reading the Mm -hmm. Bible for the next six months. And you will make it a habit. And that was so true. I mean, it was just a habit that I I started and I've maintained for like 30 years of my life. And it has been absolutely transformative. And so it's sort of fun to just offer that up to people in this book.
1: So this topic, this this book that you have coming out, A Habit Called Faith, 40 Days in the Bible to Find and Follow Jesus. This, this idea of habit, it sounds like it's been something that's just a rhythm in your own life. You've experienced it, and you've experienced the grace of God in it. And as a result, you've kind of been organizing and putting together a lot of these ideas in this book. I mean, when do you think you first knew that this was a book you had to write?
0: I... I think it started, it really was seeded in a lot of different ways. I actually could take it back even several years. I was reading a book, I think it was Kent Annan's Slow Kingdom Coming, and he had just this little reference to Blaise Pascal who had said, you know, if you are having trouble, you know, essentially, like if you're having trouble in your faith, you maybe you've wrestled with and sort of settled the intellectual arguments, and you believe in your head that Jesus is Lord, and yet faith doesn't feel very vital for you. What should you do? And Blaise Pascal said, well, you just keep going to church, and you keep going through the motions of the liturgy, and you may find that that opens some sort of back door to faith, like a vital experience of faith. And that stuck with me so much, I think especially because I live in Toronto, which is incredibly secular and cosmopolitan and so faith is this very weird experience for people. Most people think faith is just some like you're some sort of superpower that some people are born with And I had an especial advantage because I was born in you know America in the United States, not Canada. So I somehow have this superpower of faith and that makes it possible for me to believe. And so I think a lot of people who stand on the outside of faith, or maybe on the periphery of faith, they see faithful people. They see, pe- see people who are practicing Christians, devout Christians, whatever word you want to use. And they think, well, that could never be me. Like I could never have that experience, that intimacy with God. I mean, even though they wouldn't even say it in that way. And I think, again, that Pascal quote just sort of gave me a language for ways that I could talk about faith to people who didn't think it would ever be possible for them to be faithful to be a practice to be a believer and i've just sort of always held on to that and truthfully i think this book really also does come out of living in a city where faith is not at all taken for granted you know it it really is a minority position and i'm constantly wanting to start and sustain conversations of faith with people that i love and know who don't know, love and know jesus but i'm always trying to figure out how how to do that well you know and i really think that this book is a book that i could imagine putting in the hands or that i could reading i could imagine reading alongside someone who's exploring faith who's willing to sort of at least say sure i'll learn a little bit about you know the biblical story or the you know how it relates to jesus sure i'd like to know a little bit about that those are the kinds of people i even had in mind for writing this book
2: It's interesting you say that, Jen, because um, what was in the introduction really stood out to me. That image you painted of being at this fancy dinner party, I'm guessing maybe in uh, Toronto, and kind of grappling with those competing desires of wanting to impress the hosts who have a lot of money and status, while also wanting to share your faith. And and I'm guessing that a lot of listeners can relate to that, that feeling of like wanting to belong in the world, but realizing as Christians, we really don't belong in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm wondering, can you take us back to this dinner party and what you realized about your faith while you were there?
0: This was a, I mean, a very typical, honestly, conversation, although this person's reaction to me as a believer was far more explicit and honest, I think, than than a lot of conversations that I have. So essentially, we had gone over to this person's apartment, a business acquaintance of my husband and the woman, the wife of this business acquaintance is actually a writer as well. And we'd never met before this evening. So it was really just our husbands who knew each other. And just over the course of the evening, we're getting to know each other a little bit better. And mm-hmm. And she had talked about just actually turning in the manuscript for her next book, you know, just that morning. And so she turns to me. There was actually another woman there as well. She turns to me and says and asks, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm actually a writer, too. And I know that the I know what the next question is, right? It's going to be, "What do you write about?" And there's this idea, like I'm not at all ashamed to say that I'm a Christian and that I write about Christian faith. But my challenge is always to figure out a way to talk about it so that the conversation continues. You know, I don't want the conversation to just shut down. You shut
1: down, yeah. You
0: know, so I said, I'm, "You know, I'm a I'm a Christian. I write about I write about faith. I write about Christian faith." And she looked at me, just I mean, pretty aghast, and said. Like, do you believe in the Bible? And I said, I do. And she said, Do you mean like Adam and Eve and Noah? <laughs> I mean, she literally was sort of horrified. And I said, I, I do. <laughs> and she said, so like the literal Bible. And I said, well, I'd, we should really talk about that word literal. That would be such an interesting conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it sort of ended there. And then at the end of the evening, as she's showing us out to the door, she turns to her husband and she says, did you know that Jen is a believer? <laughs> and um but what a wonderful conversation. I think we often take for granted. I mean, it sounds more hostile than, than I really sort of ex- received it at the time. I think it's the idea that there's an incredible amount of discomfort. You know, people make these assumptions that to be a practicing Christian, you, you know, believe really primitive, harmful things. You know, there is that idea out there. Mm-hmm. How, do we, how do we engage that conversation? You know, how do we like not get defended You know, how do we invite people to sort of come and see? I mean, that is John, you know, the gospel of John is the second half of a habit called faith. And I love that Jesus is this is just the invitation he offers right to the first disciples, you know, come and see, Just come and check Mm. it out. And that's what this
1: book really is about. So you, first of all, you've mentioned Blaise Pascal. So <laughs> I'm a former math teacher, so I love the idea of the mathematician in here. I love Blaise Pascal. I love his works. I'm thinking about all of the rich Old Testament that you bring to light in the beginning part of this. And I love the Old Testament, and I love even more the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and Devarim, the, the, the book of Deuteronomy. Yes, 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 you have my attention. And so tell me, you start... The first half of A Habit Called Faith with some reflections and some real deep, insightful thinking in the book of Deuteronomy. And so I, I was really curious as to why did you start this Habit Called Faith there with that book?
0: Deuteronomy is definitely not the, the choice of book that you would normally think about taking someone to, especially if someone you know doesn't have a background in reading the Bible or, or understanding faith. Deuteronomy actually came to me when I was studying John. So I was studying John even previous to starting to work on this book project for a teaching that I was doing, and I was studying in the farewell discourse on how much... How many similarities there are there between Jesus giving this farewell discourse to his disciples before his death and how that mirrors the book of Deuteronomy as Moses is like giving these final sermons to the people of Israel as they prepare to cross into the promised land. And he's not going with them, right? And Jesus is is not going with his disciples. Like as he, you know, he's telling the disciples in the farewell discourse, you know, I'm I'm leaving you. And, you know, but don't be afraid. And and I'm sending the Holy Spirit and you know, and I'm Praying for you. And so I got really curious about that. I really do love the Old Testament. I would say that Genesis is probably my favorite book. And so I I knew Deuteronomy. I've read it many times, but it wasn't of particular interest to me until I read that in John. And specifically, when I was studying John, they were also saying that there are these five words that you see in the farewell discourse that mirror words and language that you see in the book of Deuteronomy. So the words are see, live, love, know, obey. I mean, aren't those great words, though? I mean, when you think about, like, the... the, I mean, I think we often think of faith in such a cerebral way. You know, like, faith is operating in the sphere of my brain. (laughs) You know? And instead of seeing, like, faith as something sort of active, as, like, it's a posture in the world, it's a way of being, it's a way of moving. And I feel like those words invite us into what faith's actions are
1: give us those words one more time because i know there's sure. listeners out there that are just like me and i only got like two of them see and live love so give me the other yes see, see live live love, love,
0: love know, okay.
1: no okay yeah oh aren't those rich there's so mm-hmm. much there and they're verbs
0: Yes, they're all verbs, and obey is is such a particularly beautiful one, and I think this is another argument for starting the book in Deuteronomy, because Mm -hmm. obedience is sort of like the drumbeat of Deuteronomy, right? You know, Moses is saying, live, people of Israel, live. Enter the promised land, receive this good gift from the Lord, and you will keep hold of it as you obey him, but of course you belong to him. It's not obey in order to belong along. It's that you've already, you know, been claimed by God. You've been possessed. You are his holy possession, his treasured possession. Now live into that identity. And I think when you think about discipleship, obedience is, I mean, you, you, you can't talk about discipleship apart from talking about obedience, Mm -hmm. but how do you talk about it in a way that is beyond sort of legalism or a meritocracy kind of thing? Like you better earn your, you know, good standing with God. Like how do we talk about obedience in ways that are beautiful and rich and grace filled? I just, yeah, I think Deuteronomy and John allow us to do that
2: you know, your book was designed to go through in this like 40 day period. And we know that, you know, before he starts his earthly ministry, he was tempted in the desert, you know, by Satan for 40 days. So I'm wondering, like, and this also kind of connects to your book. Uh, you talk about in your book, after you became a Christian when you were 16, uh, you realized that you had to make some changes specifically in regards to how you dealt with relationships, uh, physical intimacy, and, and being confronted with sin. So in thinking about preparing for um, Holy Week, how Lent invites us into that, um, into Jesus's death and resurrection... I'm wondering, what does this season of Lent mean to you uh, personally? And how do you think you know, other people who might be listening could prepare for that? Mm. I mean, when you think
0: about Lent as a season of repentance, you know, I think repentance is one of those really big churchy words that a lot of times we just, it, it, it becomes so overused, we don't really know what it means. And I think of repentance as return, You know, I think about the parable of the prodigal son and how this is an illustrative, like it illustrates to us what the movement of repentance looks like. It looks like returning to the home of your father. And you know what? Repentance is a very human act, you know, because you think about the son, the younger son, as he returns to his father, he's got the whole speech prepared in his head, right? You know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just treat me as a slave. You know, just hopefully you'll feed me again. You know, so if we think about just repentance as return and mm-hmm. Lent as a season of repentance, it's it's a season that we can sort of mark out of our calendar where we can return to consecrating ourselves to God. I think repentance and return are daily acts. You know, I don't think we mm-hmm only do it during the season of Lent, but there is something really beautiful to sort of like mark out a season of time to sort of give, to dedicate it to God and to just say, you know, I'm going to give more attention to this. And there is something really beautiful to just sort of set our intentions toward God, toward returning to God, toward acknowledging our sin and a willingness to sort of hear his words. And, you know, again, returning to Deuteronomy and thinking. About the Hebrew title, De- Devarim. These mm. are the words, you know. I mean, Lent can be a beautiful time where you just actually create intentional space in your day to hear the words of God, to make room. And I think we, it's so true, isn't it, that our lives are so crowded, so busy. You know, we just kind of uh, we operate under the assumption uh, assumption like, yeah, I would give God time if there were more room instead of maybe asking ourselves, like, how do we create room, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and Lent you You can create more room for God as you give things up I mean that's another part of Lent right mm-hmm. is to sort of maybe you give up you fast from i mean you could do from food or chocolate, but you can also fast from things that take your time that distract you to sort of where whatever you use to sort of fritter away your time maybe that's the thing that you give up so that you create room mm-hmm. for return and for the words of God
2: yeah that's so interesting I think. Uh, I attended a Catholic university, Loyola, and I remember on Ash Wednesday seeing everyone with ashes on their forehead. But at the time, I actually knew so little about, I guess, the history of the Christian tradition that I didn't, I didn't even really know entirely what it meant. But I knew it was connected to to Easter <laughs> somehow. And so I'm I'm thankful that through, you know, um, <laughs> much more reading and catechesis that I. I better understand now the purpose of Lent in the Christian life.
1: I'm curious, Jen, in your own life, how have you experienced Lent as a sacred rhythm and, and, and meaningful moment for you in a, in a season? When, when did that? When did Lent start to become an important season in your own spiritual life?
0: I think I was first introduced to Lent in college. Just we, I attended a more liturgical church, a tradition that was far more liturgical than the one that I grew up with. You know, the one that I grew up with, we marked the seasons by like the Halloween party, the you know the <laughs> Christmas Eve service. I don't even know. You know, we had no real no real rhythms, in yearly rhythms. You know, and so there was something really beautiful about understanding, at just at getting a glimpse at the church count calendar you know and the ways that it sort of recalibrated even our experience of time so that was sort of the beginning of it i mean truthfully though even beyond college i haven't really attended very many churches that put a lot of emphasis on it so it's far more probably personally driven than even in in the church mm-hmm. traditions that i've been in and quite honestly there are years that you know i I don't really do much, you know, and there are years that I, that I do, you know, and, you know, I can remember years ago, I gave up Wi-Fi, which sounds really silly. Wi-Fi at my house. (laughs) Well, no, like if I needed directions, (laughs) like I would go and I would maybe stop at Starbucks, you know, grab my directions and and head out on the road because... I tell you. Yeah,
2: there's always a way around it. You know, <laughs> it's so true.
0: I had to have my husband actually change the wifi password. Like, and it sounds crazy, but it was just, it, it was a removal of a distraction. Yeah. You know, it was just a, it was a setting apart a season to say, I don't have to have this in my life. And, you know, mm-hmm. I should be more intentional every day of the year with my um, relationship with technology. But Lent seemed like a good time. And it's a, you know, it is a recalibration because I think you emerge from a season of Lent whether you fast from food or you fast from some, uh, source of distraction or fast from some appetite that is controls you, you, you do emerge after the 40 days with a sense of the Holy Spirit's power in you that you are not bound to that thing as you thought you might've been. And, um, I do think that there's a lot of power in fasting. I think that's something that over the last couple of years, I've been sensing God inviting me more to practice. And truthfully, I fight against that. I sort of think, is that really (laughs) like... Is that really what what you want, or am I just trying to make it harder than it has to be? <laughs> right,
1: right, right. Part of me wonders, I want to go back to what, you know. Your the church experience you had. It was, mm. I'm sure, in the Chicago area, because that's where you were going to college. I have a feeling the same church that shaped your perspective of Lent shaped mine as well mm. in the Chicago area. If it met in a local high school, then yes. Yes, yes, one. yes. So, yeah, and, and I, I have since then— like you said, been in many different contexts where Lent hasn't necessarily been an emphasis. And so it does become a personal devotional sense. And so I think your book, as I was reading through it, and I think, Kelsey, the impetus probably behind your question is you probably were reading through it too, Kelsey, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, is that as you read it, you can see how this would be such a wonderful and beautiful um, tool, maybe too hard of a word, but just a facilitator for entering into space. Where you can draw closer to the Lord and the Lord can draw closer to you and draw mm-hmm. you closer into his presence. And I, mm-hmm. I've really appreciated that. And I'm looking forward to, to using this come next Lent for, uh, for me. So mm-hmm. I appreciate it. And I, I want to go back to the Hebrew word of Deuteronomy. You, you said a devarim, right? The mm-hmm. words. These are the words. And you explain it. So, well, by the way, I just have to tell you. So I, you know, probably nothing about me, but I have a Ph.D. in Old Testament, and Ancient Near Eastern Studies,
0: so Which I, makes me very nervous to have no, this
1: conversation. No, no, no. <laughs> I, 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 I did not leave really this to, to anybody. It's not a guest. but as I have read through your work, Jen, and I was telling Kelsey this earlier offline, I I have appreciated so much uh, how you have brought to life in such a careful, nuanced, delicate, meaningful way the text. And I think you've done your homework uh, in, a very, in a very excellent way. And so your work, I just I've really appreciated it. You have explained things so eloquently. You articulate things well. And, um, and so I just, I commend you. I want, you know, I'm saying this because I wanted to encourage you. Do not feel any oh, sort thank of you. at all. Let's go back to what you write. You write, in regards to Devarim, these are the words. That's what the word means in Hebrew. The words spoken by God, you write this, insist that in order to be his people, we must cultivate the habit of good listening. So I, I want to know, Jen, from you, how does cultivating the habit of good listening help facilitate one's faith in God, deepen one's faith perhaps in God, make it more vibrant, fill in the blank, but how does cultivating this habit of good listening do, do that for us?
0: I mean, when you think about listening, I mean, I guess there's lots of people that we could listen to, but listening is sort of the core of a close relationship, right? I mean, when you think about the people that, show love to you in ways that feel very genuine and particular to you, it's because they've listened well, right? It's because they've listened and they've recognized some particular kind of, whether it's like a gift that they bring and and you think, oh, you heard me when I said that and you remembered. And so listening is such an act of love. And I think that I just don't know how we have a love relationship with Jesus apart from listening to him, you know, listening to him who is the word, you know, and the, and, and the whole scripture sort of narrates what it means to be a people oriented to the word of God. You know, you think of the word and words of God. So you think about like the garden, right? And how it all sort of goes awry when God has given them his words. And then Satan comes to Eve and says, you know, did God really say? He sort of puts into question the words of God. And so it, I just don't know. I don't know a life of faith apart from listening. And I think listening, it's funny because I was actually just having this conversation with one of my children who, is practicing good listening and, and has actually needed like some very specific sort of instructions. Like, what does it mean to actually listen well? And we had had an incident where he, he caught like half of it, but then relayed like only the half, which essentially meant the wrong, (laughs) the whole was wrong because he only had half of it. And so we talked Mm -hmm. about like, what is, what is good listening? You know, it's, it's hearing. And then in that case like it would have been really good to just repeat back what you thought you heard and clarify like did i get that right you know yeah. and not but assume you that
1: you- listening skill
0: That's right.
1: Yeah. Don't <laughs> assume that you
0: did hear it right. You know, get clarification on that. And so like the, I think bound up in that exercise is the reminder that like we have to learn to listen. Hmm. You know, we don't we hear by virtue of having ears. Yeah. <laughs> we listen by virtue of practice. And as we commit to love, you know, we listen as an act of love to the people around us that we're in relationship with. And we listen to God because Mm -hmm. it is an act of love and it requires a settling of our spirit. It really does require a removal of distraction. And I talk about that early in the book. I think a lot of people wonder why why they don't hear God And I'd want to ask the question, have you created any space for listening?
1: That's important. What you just said there, and I want to hang on to that for a minute. Have you created any space for listening? That's really important. And you challenge us to do that in your work. You know, set the alarm a little earlier for, forgo the, the Netflix binge <laughs> you know, these types of things, which are all really helpful, you know, and, and then as we create that space, so tell us more, maybe you could talk even more about what are some of the ways we can enter into a space and a posture of listening,
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe share some of the ways you've done this in your own life, over the seasons, you know, what posture is good for listening? And what are some of the ways maybe we can listen?
0: I think one of the really key things is, like, dealing with our technology. I have to say that. Like, I think that's just a very practical thing. Like, it's hard to listen to God if your phone is buzzing at you, you know, right right mm-hmm. beside you on the floor. So one of the practices that I have, like, just... The quiet space that I create is always at the beginning of the day, you know, I don't think it has to be, you know, I think that there are people who do a lot better at at the end of the evening or at different points of the day. But for me, I create the space in the beginning of the day and it always, it means getting up early, listening always includes reading scripture, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't think that I could hear the words of God apart from scripture. But I think the listening also comes as that is that word is applied to my heart. Yeah. And so there's a quieting that happens, you know, and it's, it's always in the same chair. It's in the same chair in my living room. It's also with a journal in my lap.
1: Wait, I think that there's... Running around or no?
0: <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. This is very early. Like I'm ah. a five o'clock. Um, I get up really early. And so they're they're all in bed. And you know i have a so i have a journal and that sort of i i take it as i think there's one temptation that i think we can have is that we can sort of go through the motions of listening, like where it's reading, you know, you read something quickly and, you know, you offer up, you know, the prayers for the people in your family and you get on with your day. But like, do you, do you actually create the space where you allow that word to sort of like settle into you? Like where it's, it's water that has to settle into your heart. And what does God, you know, really have to say about your particular situation Mm. about your heart. I think sometimes there's a fear of listening. I think sometimes we are so focused on motion in our life because it, it feels like meaning, you know, like when I'm in motion, I feel purposeful, you know, and when I am still, I'm worried about what might rise to the surface. The moment I quiet my heart And I will say that that happens for me, you know, anxieties that rise to the surface and fears and a lot of disquiet in my heart. I don't know, I don't think it's better to ignore that, (laughs) you know, I think getting into the quiet space where you get to bring that to God, you know, then the crazy thing about listening is, because if we've, if you guys, of course, you've read the Psalms, it's not just that we listen to God, it's that he listens to us. And I find that to be unthinkable, quite awesome Hmm. to know. I mean, you have the the vivid imagery in the Psalms about God bending his ear to the earth to incline his ear to the uh, the prayers of his people. Wow. What would change about our spiritual lives? You know, just kind of like the dutiful sort of, I'm just going through the motions. Like if we just... Started to think about real yeah, listening. That,
2: that's a beautiful thing. We've we've talked a lot about the Psalms on this podcast, or, or at least a few times. And and last week I went with my husband Justin to this Lutheran monastery, and they do like a Vesper service where they chant the Psalms and the whole liturgy, and it's really beautiful. But but I want to go back to what you said about practical listening like how that can take place in our relationship with God and I think in your book you outlined a pretty good example of this the story of this uh, man Mark who he's on the cusp of becoming a Christian and he feels convicted um, about not speaking into his brother's life who's he's been a heroin addict and he's estranged from his family so Wondering, you know, what do you think our Christian responsibility is in situations like this? I think what changed his mind in that moment was hearing the voice of God and the move towards obedience. How do you think that should look um, as we live out our lives as
0: Christians That's such a fabulous story. I mean, Mark Lawrence is a bishop in South Carolina. So yeah, he got to share his story of faith with me and I include these other stories and in scripture and so many of them actually are these moments where people just they hear the voice of God. They hear God speaking to them. And it's like for the first time, they like tune in. It's
1: like a critical turning moment. It's like critical faith moments.
0: Critical, not just because they hear, but because then they respond, you know, like you were saying, Kelsey, I'm reading the rule of St. Benedict right now, hopefully for a next project. But it's been really interesting to hear his language. You know, hear somebody writing in like fifth, sixth century, and he uses the phrase the labor of obedience and the sloth of disobedience. And he talks about like taking up our noble weapons for the battle of obedience. Like he just has all this like crazy language that we just don't use. When we think of obedience, like he talks about God calling up workmen into in and in sort of pressing them into the service of the kingdom. I mean, this is language that I think is unfamiliar to us. You know, we think of obedience. Nobody wants to think about it as labor. Like we're already tired, you know? Maybe is that helpful to us, you know, to sort of, he talks about, you know, his first words, the prologue of the rule of St. Benedict begins with, listen carefully, my brothers, you know, listen. He's saying, this, you're, I'm, I'm asking you to enter into a life of listening. But then he talks about setting out on the path and getting your feet on the road and and running, you know, for the kingdom. And all of this is language, I think, that is incredibly active and that engages us as more than spectators. I really do think that that sometimes we have this notion that we can sort of like sit on the sidelines of faith and like receive all the benefits, right? But that God isn't, we forget that God's sending us into the world. This is where I sort of end with John you know, I won't assume that you got there, but, you know, it, it talk about the liturgy at our church, just this the narrative arc of the liturgy of our church and how it's, you know, it begins with God calls. And so we, re- we receive the words of God. He's calling out to us. We say, yes, we're listening. Here I am, Lord. You know, I'm listening. And then we move all the way to the end of the service. Also, God cleanses and God communes through the sermon and then we get in through the Lord's Supper. And then at the end, we get to God commissions. God sends out his listening people into the world to love and to listen. <laughs> I mean, goodness. Can you imagine, like, even if we just became the kind of people who committed to the practice of listening to our neighbors? Have you been so surprised? Like, in COVID, I'm just so surprised at how desperate people are for someone just to listen to them. I invited my neighbor over. I thought, just had that sense, like, okay, I hadn't seen her. Usually we're, like, chatting, you know, if we see each other outside So I had her into my backyard um, this summer and she talked for like, we talked for like two and a half hours. I don't want to pretend that was just her talking, but at the end she felt she even sent me this sheepish text. Like, I can't believe I talked so long. And I guess, you know, I guess I really needed someone to listen. Being the listening people sent out into the world, that is not to be underestimated for the love of God, for the love of our neighbor, for the glory of Christ.
1: You had mentioned about how this work, you know, these 40 days, and you start with Deuteronomy and for the first half, the first 20 or so days is we're in the book of Deuteronomy and we're deep, we're in the thick of it. And then you move us into the book of John and you take us through John, which is so lovely, you take us all the way to the end to the beach. And you integrate your own life stories in such an eloquent way and invite us to see ourselves in there as well. And you offer questions for us to ponder. You even put small group questions at the end of your work. So anybody listening to this right now, I would encourage you to think about this book, not just for your own personal edification and journey, but maybe for a journey with a group of real tight, your crew, your tribe, you know, you could get together with them. But One of the things you've, you've said, Jen, that I wanted to capture earlier, you said, this is a book that's designed to walk with somebody perhaps new in their faith. And you write this at the very beginning of your book, and I think it's such an important thing to capture. You write, quote, one way of deciding for or against faith is by asking the simplest of questions does its story make good sense of the world? Mm. When did that, when did this biblical narrative, when did the story become true for you? And when did this reality begin to make sense for you? Like, this is what faith is. Like if it can make sense of the story we find ourselves in, mm. then yes. Like when did that start to click?
0: Yeah. I mean, I was a church kid, you know, I kind of knew a lot of the stories and there was not ever a time in my life where I said, I don't believe this. It was, there was a time in my life where I said, I don't want this. I don't really, I'll come back to this, you know, when I'm maybe 30 and driving a minivan and like (laughs) life is boring already. And I... I was sixteen when I would say I, I had an encounter with the Living Christ, who said, "You know, it really just put questions to me. You know, what do you want? Where are you headed? Will you follow?" And it, it, and it's funny that we've we've spent the whole episode talking about listening, and I I guess it really did sort of begin there. You know, with an encounter with Christ, which was not an intellectual sort of exercise at all. It wasn't a "What do I think about the story?" and does Make good sense of the world. You know, it, it it made sense because it felt so true. I would say that I am now 30 years past that moment, constantly confronted with other stories about the world and always sort of coming back to. I mean, I have to be honest, like as a Christian, I mean, I think it's just an honest sort of wrestling, like, does this story continue to make good sense to the world? Well, I've lost my, I lost my father when I was 18. My brother committed suicide when I was 23. I mean, there were early losses in my life that, that sort of, stripped me of any illusion that this is like a perfect world, you know, mm-hmm. but I've known the faithfulness of God. I was even talking to somebody yesterday who's a skeptic and we were talking about this exact question. Does the cross answer the problem of evil? And I said to, I said to this person I don't want to use the word answer because it makes it sound so logical, like, and yeah. and sort you of mathematical, yeah. right. You know, answer, what does that even mean? I said redress. I think that's the word that I would, I would use like redress, mm-hmm. like God is addressing and redressing the problem of evil in the cross of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So as a Christian, like, I, I love, too, how John—we get to the end of John, and he tells us what the whole purpose of his gospel is. This has been written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you'd have life in his name. But if you get into the Greek there, you know, I guess some manuscripts have a form of the verb that is more like, come to believe— that Jesus is the Christ, and others that are more like continue to believe. And I actually love that ambiguity. I love to think, because I think faith is the act of coming to believe and continuing to believe. Continuing to believe that Christianity tells the truest story of the world, that Mm -hmm. this world, the expectations we have for this world, that it should be better than it is, are right. And there's a reason that the world is broken, and there's a hope that it will not always be.
1: Your 40-day journey, as you, if you were to do this and walk with someone through it, it really does gently, boldly, and wisely walk someone through some of the sticky parts of life, the conflicting and the. And I love that you don't even shy away from some parts. You know, you're willing to enter into the tensions of like these ancient laws and you don't, you know, things that don't really make sense in the Old Testament for the average person, uh, for many people for most. And you decide, you know what, I'm not going to try to bury that stuff or hide from it or run away from it. I'm going to bring it out. And I love some of the things you say, and you, you delicately address them and walk with them. And I can see how this work would do um, just that for an explorer of the faith, somebody who's curious about not necessarily finding the answers, but maybe hearing some of the reasons or explanations for why things are the way they are.
2: When you are talking, I think Either you, John, or Oliver mentioned grace, and I noticed that was a theme you said in your book that some Christians argued the church would be better off to dispense of the Old Testament in favor of the new. We see God striking down kings and Israelites when they worship the golden calf in Exodus 32. Um, people love pointing to those things and saying, like, what kind of God is this that you, you know, serve?" Um, And some atheists cite violence authorized by God in the Old Testament as a reason for their unbelief. Um, So I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. (laughs) How can we say, you know, he's gracious and abounding and steadfast love when we see all the things that happened in the Old Testament?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> oh, putting me on the spot here. I will. I. I'll, I'm going to answer your question. I'm also going to say that the, kind of cool. When I was writing the book, I actually started reading Deuteronomy with three women from my church, two of whom are not Christians, wow. one of whom has become a Christian just from reading Deuteronomy. Not not, we have, we actually just started John this fall. We're a little bit behind. Um, and it's not that they've been reading the book. We've just been mm-hmm. reading, we've just actually been reading scripture. And I can remember this person's, one of the women who's now a Christian, her reaction, we were probably in like chapter four or five. And she was like, I am just ready to turn, to just turn this whole, I'm getting ready to just be done with this experiment. You know, this is not the God that I thought that I was going to meet in scripture. I mean, she had sort of raised in a, a phenomenally sort of religious home, you know, Christmas, Easter kind of attendance and a vague sense of like, okay, I can see Jesus on the cross. I'm sure that meant something, you know, in terms of like the actual statues in the, in the church buildings. And I remember thinking like, oh, what have I done? You know, I've, we've, I've brought her into the heart of it, you know, some of these (laughs) real difficulties. But you know what it did? Like, it, it deconstructed the illusion of, of God, you know, like this illusion that she had of God, like that God's always, that, he's, that he is sort of that cherry-cheeked Santa Claus, just wanting to dispense gifts to his children, whether or not they're nice or naughty, you know? And, <laughs> and, I, and I actually don't think we want a God like that. We mm-hmm. don't want a God who does not judge evil, I mean, there's a reason why the Psalms, we say the trees are going to clap their hands and the the heavens are going to rejoice when God exercises his judgment. We want that. We actually do want that. We, We want a morally intelligible universe where like... Good, you know, survives and is rewarded and evil is not. The problem is, and this is where Deuteronomy just puts us right into the heart of it, is that we're not capable of that kind of goodness. Mm. We want it. We want a God to judge everyone else's evil. I want him to judge your greed and your dishonesty and your betrayal, but not mine. Mm and we can have that. So so how the gospel sort of takes us into like the, the beauty of God both exercising his righteous judgment over sin and sparing the sinner, you know, because of Christ. So I think Deuteronomy just I mean there's this one line in Deuteronomy that I I quote to people and I don't think they get as excited about it as I do, but maybe Oliver you
1: will. I will. <laughs>
0: Because it's um, it's from Robert Alter's translation. Yeah, it's, it's a great um, translation. Oh, it's incredible. I, I think it's, Deuteron- <laughs> it's towards Which, the end. Yeah, and, and you know, he says the the verses. Did he act ruinously, God? No, his son's the fault. And it's just like this. I don't know why I love it so much. It's just so poetic and it's so direct. Like Deuteronomy is like saying Israel failed. Like they yeah. they failed before. They're given all of these you know sermons by Moses and they're going to fail again. And yet somehow the book ends on blessing. How is that yeah. possible? Thanks I think it's God. tremendously
1: hopeful. We have a faithful God. And I think you draw attention to that. You challenge us to build this habit of faith, and in reality, we are very much like the Israelites, and we struggle to have faith. We struggle to be faithful, and that's, you know, the book of Numbers, which is right before Deuteronomy, that if you were to sum up the theological points of Numbers, it's it's to highlight that the people of Israel are never faithful, Mm -hmm. while God the whole time is faithful Mm -hmm. and just in his whole dealings. And so I think you're drawing out some really beautiful things in your work, Jen. And I, like I said earlier, I am so excited about this book. And I think you are so gifted at taking Really complicated and deep theological themes, and bringing them into very clear light for a new believer, somebody who's been a seasoned believer that perhaps just needs to get reignited or recalibrated in their walk. So, I have really appreciated your work, Jen. And I hope, I hope anybody listening to our episode today and tuning in that you will go and order this book. Think about doing this book with a small group. I love your titles, Jen. I'm going to read a few of your titles. Is that all right <laughs> if I read a few here? <laughs> You have titles like, There's No Place Like Home, Worrying for God's Reputation. (laughs) (laughs) And I love this one, and I loved reading it, No Mercenary Affair. (laughs) And then you referenced this one earlier, No Cherry Cheeked Santa Claus which That's is right. that that group of readers. So <laughs> you have a way with words. You have a, it, it's just it's been a pleasure to enter into your work and I'm I am personally being challenged by it. So mm-hmm. I hope others will take a look at it and that they too will be encouraged and sharpened in their faith. Thank you so much for sharing with us this book and taking the time today to talk with us about your work. I don't know if you want to say any final words. I want to give you the last <laughs> I
0: don't think you want me to say any final words cuz it could be, you know, a, another time for for soapbox, but <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll say this. The woman that I referenced who became a Christian through reading Deuteronomy, she went after Deuteronomy, then she started back at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And, and it was about Easter time this last year that she was putting together Jesus as the Passover lamb. And she sent us this incredible, you know, voice memo just for the four of us that are in the Bible study, like, like just this epiphany. You know, Jesus is the Passover lamb. And that is, we can't stop believing that the Holy Spirit can speak through the Old Testament, that he can actually speak the gospel of Jesus Christ through the Old Testament.
1: Amen. Amen. It is the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, Mm -hmm. who creates an exodus for all of us to leave behind our brokenness and enter into this new life. What a beautiful, what a beautiful realization. Well, Jen, we appreciate you so much, and uh, I really do. I really sincerely hope that you uh, you sell a million copies of this book. I really do. I I hope that you uh, you, you know because I know I know your heart, Jen. I've I've seen it in your work. Your heart is to really help along people and to equip them to draw closer to the Lord. That shines through, and so I appreciate that about you. Well, for those of you tuning in, thank you. This episode of the Transforming Discipleship Podcast has been brought to you by smallgroups.com. We are a ministry of Christianity today. I am your host, Pastor Oliver Hersey. I'm in the Chicago area. We just want to thank all the ministry leaders, you who have tuned into this episode. And if you have found this episode helpful for your ministry, would you do three things for me? Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We love five-star ratings. And subscribe to smallgroups.com today. This podcast is also available on Amazon Podcasts, on your Amazon Alexa device, and on other podcast platforms as well. If you want full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe today. We have various plans to meet your budget. This will give you access to hundreds of Bible studies and tools to train your small group leaders and so much more. And also for those of you who would like to get in touch with us directly, we have an email address now. It's discipleship at smallgroups.com. So until next time, my friends, God bless.